Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On December 14, 2012, a gunman killed 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, uh, Connecticut. Ten years later, New York Times feature writer Elizabeth Williamson's Sandy Hook, an American tragedy in the battle for truth, investigates the aftermath. When a group of Sandy Hook families confronted a frenzy of online denial and conspiracy and a and a portent of the struggle over truth and facts that today threatens American democracy. Elizabeth Williamson is a feature writer for the New York Times. She joined the Times as a member of the editorial board, writing about national politics during the 2016 presidential campaign. Previously, she was a writer for Wall Street Journal, covering national politics, the White House, national reporter for the Washington Post. Began her career with a, a decade as foreign correspondent, including covering Eastern Europe for the Wall Street Journal. She grew up in Chicago and lives in Washington, D.C. Elizabeth Williamson, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Tom. It's great to be with you. So uh, Sandy Hook, of course, you know, we all lived through this, quote unquote. Um, just, just, and you spend, of course, part of the book, first part of the book on on this and helping us to get to know the families and and uh, some portraits of some of the kids. Um, just remind us in, in brief what happened on that terrible day, December 14th, 2012. Absolutely. So um, on that day, um, a gunman entered Sandy Hook Elementary School, which was a, a K through fourth grade school, um, and uh, killed 20 first graders and six educators. Yeah, that's just 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 a tragedy. And then the, the, the just horrible, horrible pain uh, for those families. You, you write, um, uh, for example, I, I don't know if you pronounce it, uh, Veronique or Veronica De La Rosa, the mother of Noah uh, Poster. Yeah, Veronique De La Rosa, yeah. yeah. She worked as a, a nurse, right? Uh, so she's. You, you write about her yeah. driving as fast as she can down the interstate, 30-some-odd miles. You get there, you got two of her kids there, but you wait and wait and wait, and Noah, you know, never comes out. Yeah, uh, Noah was the youngest Sandy Hook victim, and um, uh, he had a twin, um, Ariel, uh, who survived, was in, um, you know, they were, because they were twins, they were learning in separate classes uh, so as not to distract each other, um, and and that is what saved Ariel's life. Um, And they also had Sophia, their older sister, who was in second grade um, and who also survived. Uh, so you know, just a trauma and and a horrible thing to have happen to all of these families. This mass uh, shooting, mass death. Then this morphed, as we know, into uh, you know a big debate over gun control, right? And that's not yeah. your focus in this book. Your focus is uh, then unexpectedly, I think, to most of us, became a battle over the truth. Yes. Absolutely. So um, just as you say, Tom, this was a watershed moment in the gun policy debate, um, and it was seen as that for both sides in the debate. Um, it's interesting to note that the, the Sandy Hook families themselves have a range of views on gun policy, um, but uh, they were cast by the conspiracy theorists as kind of being in lockstep with the Obama administration and cooperating as, quote, crisis actors in uh, in a hoax in what they said was, you know, the Sandy Hook shooting was a staged event that was a pretext for confiscating Americans' firearms. That was the sort of main line of Alex Jones of InfoWars and many of the conspiracy theorists who spread 
rumors about this, false claims about this shooting, and were also content providers to Alex Jones and InfoWars. Before we go forward, we should mention, remind our listeners that there, you know, there's a family that lives in Utah here that's uh, unfortunately affected by, by Sandy Hook. Yes, absolutely. So um, Robbie and Alyssa Parker had um, have three daughters. Their eldest daughter, Emily, was killed in the shooting, and she is buried there in Utah. And um, in the book, I do describe uh, how the Parker family, um, how moved they were by just the incredible outpouring of, of love and tribute that they encountered when, you know, they flew themselves and also Emily's body was flown back to Utah. Just, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners remember that, you know, just the ribbons tied everywhere and, you know, um, the U.S. Air um, staffers standing at attention as um, her casket was unloaded from the plane and just the incredible outpouring uh, from your state. So in general, or or maybe some specific families that you interviewed, before you even get to the additional, the, the layered-on trauma the, from these conspiracy theorists and, and harassment and, and horrible stories, even before we get there, just yeah. the, the trauma of losing your child in, in something like this, what uh, what stands out at you from, from some of these families? Well, you know, staying with the Parker's story, um, they were very new to Sandy Hook when this occurred. They had lived in Connecticut for less than a year. And, you know, that, that it was a difficult year for them anyway, because Alyssa had lost her father earlier that year. Um, they were still adjusting to a new home um, and, you know, had just settled into a new home in Sandy Hook when, when Emily died. But it was just, you know, the thing that happened was, um, well, just to tell you a little bit about Robbie. So, what was happening was that folks there in Utah were getting a lot of calls, family and friends of the Parkers, you know, media saying we would, we'd like to know more about Emily's life and what was she like and we'd like you to, in, you know, grant us an interview. And Robbie and Alyssa decided, no, um, we want to speak about her ourselves. You know, she's our daughter. And so they made an appointment with what they thought was just a um, – you know, one reporter, but it turned out to be, of course, a sea of cameras and reporters. And Robbie spoke to them, but he was extremely nervous, having expected just one reporter to turn up. Um, he spoke to them in front of his LDS church in uh, in Newtown. And um, as he was stepping to the podium, he was uh, he gave a kind of half gasp, half laugh before he settled into, you know, what he wanted to say about Emily. Um, that split second was used by the conspiracy theorists to say that Robbie Parker was an actor, that Emily Parker never died at Sandy Hook, and that the whole thing was being staged and faked for the cameras. And that's something that haunted him through all of these years, you know, people stalking him. At one point in 2016, accosting him on the street, you know, uh, hurling insults at him, calling him a liar and a profiteer who had benefited financially from the murder of his daughter. Of course, you know, obviously beyond the pale of decency, right? Um, but uh, let's get into now t- right. talk, talking about how this could happen, right, and what this says about yeah about our world, about our society. Uh, You write, from a decade's distance, Sandy Hook stands as a portent, a warning of the power of unquenchable viral lies to leap the firewalls of decency and tradition 
to engulf accepted fact and established science and to lap at the foundations of our democratic institutions. So you, you write, and I, I hadn't known this, um, you know, I don't follow Alex Jones <laughs> in faux war, um, mm-hmm. but you, you remind us that on the very afternoon, uh, Alex Jones started in uh, with, he, he says on his program that afternoon, uh, my gut is that with the timing and everything that happened, this is staged. So he starts in that very day. Yes, he did. And that um, really stood in contrast. When I first began reporting this book, um, I actually wasn't sure if his claims, you know, years' worth of claims, that he was only echoing the questions and the claims of others, um, you know, what his actual role had been. So it was a revelation to me to listen to his broadcast from that day and realize that, Oh, he actually started in within hours of the shooting. Um, and for him, it was the gun control aspect. You know, he is a um, uh, absolutely opposed to um, most forms of gun legislation. And um, so this was a driving thing for him, as, of course, was profit, because his traffic to the InfoWars website absolutely surged after Sandy Hook. And the more he spoke about this, it seemed just from the the numbers that he was racking up that, you know, the more he spoke about it, um, the more traffic he received. It was uh, it was quite striking. I mean, between 2013 and 2016, when he spoke about this the most um, traffic, you know, meaning viewers, um, to his two websites, InfoWars and another website called Prison Planet, more than doubled to 50 million average monthly page views. So it's good business for him, obviously. You, you've, yeah. you've talked to, you've interviewed him, I think, right? I did, yeah. I interviewed him um, shortly after I began work on this book. Um, and, you know, he, he at first behaved much like he does on his show, really bombastic, super theatrical, kind of running around the room, um, trying to sort of menace me and, and scare me and accuse me of, you know, being a plant of this or that or CIA or, you know, some of these, you know, wilder claims that he makes on his show. But he also tried to say that he was blaming the mainstream media for spreading the the conspiracy theories around Sandy Hook because he hadn't spoken about it in a couple of years at that point. So it was sort of like this flipping it on its head, you know, that because people talk about him as being a, a sort of prime vector of the Sandy Hook conspiracy theories, that when the media writes that he was doing that, that that made it our fault because we were writing about it or broadcasting it, not him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just gives you a kind of window into his thinking. You talk about a kind of a pattern here. To, so <clears throat> the conspiracist questions grew into suspicion. Suspicion grew into demands for more proof. Unanswered demands turned into rage. Um, and you want to say this pattern of denial and attack would come to characterize some of America's response to almost every major event, you know, from these mass shootings up until the January 6th. Um, of 2021, um, yeah. you, you you interviewed several of these conspiracy theorists. Um, yes. What what's this is a very important question. What's what's driving this? What what are they getting out of this? Why why are they? I mean, from <laughs> from an average person's perspective, that this is just crazy. What uh, what are they getting out of this? 
So that's a great question, Tom. So, um, you know, what I was learning was, and when I talked with Lenny Posner, who is, you know, kind of a hero of the book, he is the father of Noah Posner, um, Veronique's son, um, the youngest Sandy Hook victim. He has a, a technological background, and he, he could tell immediately that this was not a one-off. This was not even a sort of, you know, eruption um, in our public discourse based on how uh, vociferous the debate around gun control was in the aftermath of the shooting. He said this is a much broader thing that, you know, this was a foundational story about how false narratives and misinformation have gained traction in our society. So it was from Sandy Hook to Pizzagate to QAnon to Charlottesville to coronavirus to the 2020 election. There were very big similarities in the way these conspiracy theories were spread um, in the attacks on the perceived villains in these plots, um, like the Sandy Hook families or like, like Fauci or, um, or here in my home of Washington, just down the street, um, Comet Ping Pong, which was the pizzeria that brought a, that where the Pizzagate theory uh, broadcast on Infowars, by the way, is what drew a gunman to a pizza place in Washington, D.C. that was full of kids. Um, so this kind of thing, like these people were, they had ideology, some of them. Um, some of them, um, Alex Jones chiefly, it was profit. They were raising a lot of money to, quote, investigate these false claims. Um, but for a lot of them, this provided a kind of psychic income and also uh, a socialization. So these people created sort of cir- online circles of people, almost like a quilting circle would be, where they just embroider these myths around Sandy Hook or these other major events and just kind of share stories, reinforce each other, praise each other, you know, when they came up with new, quote, anomalies or errors in the reporting or things that sort of reinforced the idea that Sandy Hook was a hoax. Um, so it was, it became this sort of self-reinforcing, you know, kind of social ecosystem that they were members of. And the more cohesive they became, the more people who came to them bearing truth, like Lenny Posner, trying to say, I can answer your questions, I can disprove a lot of these theories and debunk a lot of these claims, they viewed him as a threat. So that gets us to a key a key element here, right? I mean, it's one thing to, to put this out here, right? Um, yeah. The conspiracy theory, the obvious falsehood that the, this was staged, that nobody died, right? That, that obviously false, but, yeah. to, but to them, they attach to this. But, but I guess if you, if you see a parent like Lenny Posner as a threat, then it's a short jump to, um, you know, outing his financial records and harassing him on the street. And uh, you, you write in the book that uh, Lenny Posner rented for many years, because yes. because the address would be given out and he'd get harassed and he'd have to move. Yeah, it was unbelievable what happened to him because he was, as someone who could see where this was headed, that, you know, th- these theories were not just going to be about Sandy Hook. They were going to start forming and spreading online um, after most major events. Um, so because he took it on himself to really combat this, to get this material taken down, most importantly, once that started happening, these conspiracy theorists really turned vicious and they did target him. So he, by 
today has moved uh, about a dozen times. Um, each time he would move, they would put his address online. Put um, they put one of them put a hundred page TransUnion credit report that had all of his financial information, all of his contact information, and that of many members of his family online. Um, and then, you know, in 2016, which to me was a real watershed year, um, because this was when this all began jumping from the virtual to the real world, where these folks were proving themselves, the conspiracy theorists, I mean, were proving themselves willing to not only to harass people online, but to stalk them in the real world and, and approach them confront them, harass them, and threaten them. Um, So in January of 2016, a woman named Lucy Richards was arrested for making death threats against um, Lenny um, and his family. And then in um, fall of 2016, Robbie Parker was accosted on the street in Seattle, 3,000 miles away from where he made that one TV appearance after Sandy Hook, but broadcast dozens of times on InfoWars so that a man recognized him, approached him on the street. Robbie thought maybe he was going to offer condolences, and instead he just started hurling these insults at him, calling him a liar and a profiteer, and followed him down the street doing this as he tried to get away from him. And then just a couple months later, in December of 2016, you have Edgar Madison Welch entering Comet Ping Pong here in Washington with a rifle, firing it inside, convinced that he was liberating children um, from a basement dungeon who were being trafficked by top Democrats. Just a complete crazy lie in a restaurant that, by the way, doesn't have a basement. So fortunately, nobody was hurt. But that was a watershed year for people's willingness to pursue the targets of of these um, hoax threats. And lest we just dismiss uh, these folks, right, uh, and, and think, oh, it's a small number. It's mm-hmm. an it's an appalling number. I, I can't remember the specific figure. It's an appalling number of Americans who believe in QAnon. It's an appalling number of people who, yeah, who believe that yeah, 40, yeah. 40 million. Uh, just incredible, right? Um, yeah. And and actually, you know, in that same I have to I have to think back about that. But I think it was right around the time that there were all these real world events. Um, Fairleigh Dickinson University um, published a, a poll in which that, that showed that 25 percent of Americans believed that Sandy Hook was either definitely or possibly or possibly staged by the government. So that's unbelievable. And as a as a as a sort of um, additional sort of facet of that study, there were there was a similar proportion of Americans who thought that they might have to defend their beliefs with violence. And to me, this was a foreshadowing of what happened on January 6th, 2021 at the Capitol, um, that you saw a critical mass of people who believed an easily disprovable lie willing to defend it with violence. Oh, let's, we're, we're due for a break. Let's take a break, but uh, I'll just uh, preview this. We'll get into this the next segment, perhaps the one after later in the hour. But uh as we know, um, you know, some of the families took uh, Alex Jones to court 
Um, and mm-hmm. the and Posner's lawyer, Mark Blankston, said something profound. You quote in the book. He says, we're in the middle of a war over who controls information, who's the arbiter of truth. And if you destroy arbiters of truth, anybody can be an arbiter of truth. That's it's a world, unfortunately, we're living in or soon living in here. We'll talk about uh, how we can, uh, you know, some solutions as well. We're talking with Elizabeth Williamson. Her new book is out, uh, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy in the Battle for Truth. And we'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On December 14, 2012, a gunman killed 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, uh, Connecticut. Uh, Ten years later, New York Times feature writer Elizabeth Williamson's Sandy Hook, an American tragedy in the battle for truth, investigates the aftermath when a group of Sandy Hook families confronted a frenzy of online denial and conspiracy in a portent of the struggle over truth and facts that today threatens American democracy. So we're talking with Elizabeth Williamson on the program uh, today. Um, so I want to go back to Alex Jones. This, uh, you know, he, he denies he's a nexus, but he, uh, I think he is a nexus, right? Um, he, mm-hmm. he amplified. The, the people out there might have believed this, but they, they, they all tune into Alex Jones, and, and then they start contacting each other, right? Um, mm-hmm. And one of the I don't know, clever things that you recount that Alex Jones does. This kind of uh, echoes uh, QAnon, which uh, came on later. Uh, he tells his listeners, do their own research. You know, sets up the premise, and then he says, go do your own research. And, and then I guess you you feel like you're participating in something. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that brought people together uh, in a way that, you know, they became these sort of... Um, you know, citizen journalists and collaborators in um, in researching a plot and um, trying to find um, the Sandy Hook family members um, and and confronting them and cooking up different theories that they could then file public re- public excuse me public records requests to request information about um, and you know torment um, the board of ed in Newtown the the city officials and friends and neighbors of uh, and of the families themselves. So, yeah, that was uh, investigate it yourself has led to a lot of trouble um, among InfoWars listeners, including the Pizzagate um, situation where that gunman uh, came to the pizza restaurant in Washington because he wanted to, as he put it, self-investigate uh, what was happening there and whether there was indeed Democrats uh, trafficking in children from that restaurant. But of course, uh, conspiracy theorists, uh, whatever, y- you hear this and then you're going to do your own research. But, you know, what is that research? You're, you're looking for your truth, right? And and you're only going to accept things that confirm that, I would suppose. Yeah. I mean, if you think about um, the, the Sandy Hook hoax itself, the lie that um, that these people were believing in and spreading, it's really mind-blowing because you're talking about a town of about 10,000 people that, and it, and if you recall, you know, President Obama was newly reelected in December of 2012, and he, and actually Newtown had voted for Mitt Romney. So the idea that an entire town would collaborate um, in pulling off a seamless hoax um, dictated by a Democratic president in the cause of gun control 
it just beggars any form of belief. I mean, it's not even remotely believable. Um, and so you have these people who say that they're investigators and truth tellers latching on to the craziest threads and shreds of, um, you know, erroneous reporting or happenstance to sort of say that, oh, that is the smoking gun that shows that this whole shooting in Newtown, Connecticut was planned and staged and supported by the entire town um, in 2012. Um, It's just, it's mind-blowing. I mean, Wolfgang Halbig, who made two dozen trips, this is a conspiracist who made two dozen trips uh, to Newtown to pursue public records requests, um, trailed by an InfoWars cameraman. Um, One of his big, you know, claims to fame was that he noticed that someone had delivered porta-potties to the, the outside of the firehouse where the parents had gathered waiting news and, and, you know, reuniting early on and later awaiting news of their, their loved ones, the parents and the other family members. And people were just bringing and giving and doing whatever they could in the middle of this tragedy. Probably someone delivered a bunch of porta-potties because the place, the parking lot of the firehouse was loaded with first responders and media and family members. And so they probably figured that these might be needed. To this man, Wolfgang Halbig, um, a former Florida educator, by the way, who should have known better, um, he saw this as these must have been delivered before the actual shooting as part of the planning for this staged event. And for years, he pursued any kind of paperwork that would have to do with these porta-potties until finally the state of Connecticut found something in the freedom of information laws to shut down this guy's, you know, ceaseless demands for, for records. They gave him thousands of pages of documents in response to his um, requests, and he had a legal right to those. But his requests just became so vexatious and so numerous that they finally were able to, to sort of show that he was basically the equivalent of a vexatious litigant and to, to stop um, this whole um, craziness where he was turning up in Newtown and, and tormenting families and demanding proof of something that had been eminently proven. I want to get into a little later to uh, the, this fascinating story of uh, of how Lenny Posner and some of the others start to fight back, and then, of course, that culminates in court uh, with with the victory over Alex Jones. But um, I want to talk about this idea of who's the arbiter of truth. And, uh, yeah. you know, the lawyer, Mark Blankston, says, if you destroy the arbiters of truth, anybody can be an arbiter of truth. And, we're, you know, we, we're seeing that now. Uh, so this issue writ large, then, um, how do you connect this into to our society, to culture? Because on a lot of these things now, we're just talking past each other, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, if you discard um, verifiable fact um, and people's own eyewitness accounts and experiences as as truth, and put forward as Kellyanne Conway infamously did during the Trump administration, alternative facts. There are no alternative facts, but we have a growing number of Americans in this country who believe in concocting their own facts, whether to support their gut feelings, um, their ideology, their beliefs, 
you know, or just simply their desires. And I guess the culmination of that would be a president who didn't want to leave office, who didn't want to acknowledge that he had lost the 2020 election, and so concocted his own body of fact um, and got thousands, millions, actually, 70 million people to believe it. And then what's next, right? Uh, It's frightening. Yeah, yeah, because then what do you do? I mean... I think that, you know, you, we can, and we can all tell by their actions, I think a significant number of the people who turned up in Washington on January 6, 2021, genuinely did believe that the election was stolen from them. And let's face it, if that had genuinely happened, there would be a reason to descend on Washington and to try and do whatever you could to rest that back. I mean, if they were genuinely feeling like democracy had failed them, then that really does go a long way toward explaining their actions. Of course, there were many people around them, including Alex Jones and the president himself, who were using that fervor to their own ends. And you do talk in the book about, you know, some possible solutions and what we can do. I want to get into that a little later in the program. Let's take another break. And when we come back, I want to tell the story of uh, how um, Lenny Posner and others uh, start fighting back uh, from among the families. Uh, we're talking with Elizabeth Williamson. The book is Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy in the Battle for Truth. And we'll have more following this. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Elizabeth Williamson. She's a feature writer with the uh, New York Times, and uh, she's written an important new book. It's called Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy in the Battle for Truth, and it's out now. Uh, so, Elizabeth uh, Williamson, um, you, you write that uh, Lenny Posner, of course, the father of uh, Noah Posner, one of the, the kids, the youngest uh, child, right, uh, killed at uh, Sandy yes. Hook. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lenny Posner, at uh, first he's, he says, well, I'm going to engage with these folks. I think I can engage with them. What what happened? Yeah, so Lenny, as, as we mentioned a little earlier, has a tech background. He had been interested in computers when the industry was really in its infancy. Um, and he had um, a technology consulting business. So he really understood how the Internet worked at a time when not a lot of us did. Um, so he knew that algorithms sort of feasted on outrage and, you know, kind of anger-producing content, and that, you know, they, they fed that sort of any content that got a lot of reaction was then fed to other people in their news feeds on Facebook or, you know, in their Twitter feeds or what have you. Um, so he also had um, an interesting aspect to his background in that he liked kind of conspiracy theorizing as entertainment. To him, he described it to me for the book as, you know, this is sort of like the Da Vinci Code, you know, that kind of thing. Um, this sort of conspiracy theorizing, the moon landing, those sort of more innocuous um, conspiracy theories, he thought were interesting because they were sort of intellectual exercise for him. And when he was driving between clients, he would also just sort of listen to Alex Jones sometimes, you know, when Alex Jones was speculating about the moon landing or different, you know, government projects or whatever, just to hear, you know, kind of, as he put it, like the opposite side of information sort of thing. Um, So it was entertainment for him. Of course, that swiftly ended after Sandy Hook, and he saw these things, these theories take a very dark turn. And 
you know, the darkest part of it, of course, was that the Sandy Hook families were being targeted by those who and hunted by those who believed these online false theories. So he thought that he could deploy not only his unique background and and his sort of having entertained this in the past, but also his, you know, sort of standing as a grieving father from Sandy Hook to confront these people and to say, I will show you the proof of Noah's life and death, his his death certificate, his postmortem exam, um, some of his school records even, and I'll show you he was a living, breathing little boy who was murdered on December 14th, 2012. Um, so he went into um, a Sandy Hook hoax, which was a Facebook group, big one at the time, to try and show these documents, answer people's questions, and respectfully debunk the things they were believing. But what he found was that that group identity that we talked about earlier was so strong and so sort of important to those people that he didn't really stand a chance with the most hardcore conspiracists among them. They started to ridicule him. They started to pick apart his story. They started to ask him for more pieces of proof. They started to ask really intrusive sort of mocking questions. But at the same time, Tom, a really interesting thing happened. A lot of these early, early conspiracy theorists around Sandy Hook were young moms who had children around the same age as the children who died. And they weren't, it wasn't so much that they had a conspiratorial mindset. It was that they just were struggling with the fact that this had happened at all, that these children, so many of them had died in this brutal, awful way. And so they were there for anybody who could sort of convince them that this hadn't happened, that, you know, our society wasn't so dark that this actually happened. Um, so he noticed Lenny, uh, the Sandy Hook dad, Lenny, uh, Noah's dad, noticed that these sorts of sympathetic questions coming from some of these women. So he began to have a sort of side group. He formed a side, um, you know, kind of a Facebook group called um, Conspiracy Theorists Anonymous, just what he dubbed it. And they gathered there and he answered those, most of them women, not all, but um, a lot of them parents. He started to answer their questions and he convinced them and, you know, satisfied them. Um, no question was too brutal or awful as long as it was, you know, asked in a way that, you know, they genuinely wanted to know and weren't trying to pick apart his story. And they became the most committed among the volunteers that he pulled together into the Honor Network, which was the group that, you know, worked to take down this content from the web and is still an organization today, a nonprofit. Yeah, that's that's a very helpful uh, part of this, yeah. You you write, uh, you say, Lenny's original version, talking about Lenny Posner, Lenny's original uh, mission, tracking Noah's scent through cyberspace, his son, wrestling yeah. his image away from the deniers and profiteers. Understand that... Uh, you know, a lot of this, they, the families couldn't really counteract, uh, you know, First Amendment rights, I guess, to expression, but they could. They did have a legal leg to stand on uh, when conspiracists used uh, images of the children, right? Yes, exactly. So um, after Noah's death, 
uh, Lenny set up. There's no longer uh, Google Plus anymore, but there was a, uh, a page. It was kind of a Facebook-type page, um, a Google Plus page that was a kind of memorial to Noah. So it had a lot of family photos, Noah with his sisters, with his mom as a baby, um, videotapes of him playing outside and singing and, you know, on his birthday, blowing out candles. It was a beautiful little tribute to him. And People started to gather there, and um, and some of them, you know, really to express support. Again, these young moms, you know, gathering there, trying to offer what they could. And then there were also some really pernicious hoaxers who started to gather at Noah's memorial page and put really horrific comments um, on the page. Um, but they were also taking those images and using them in their conspiracy-themed Sandy Hook videos, putting them in the, you know, places like the Sandy Hook hoax Facebook page, um, posting them online. But Lenny owned that material. He took those photos. And so he was able to use copyright laws to get the hoax material about the Sandy Hook families taken down. If they were using those images, then he could get that taken down under what's called the DCMA laws. Um, so he got that content taken down, and that was sort of the first tool in his toolkit. Uh, tell me briefly about the the, the lawsuit. The uh, it was this uh, defamation. What what brought lawsuit they bring against Alex Jones? Yeah, so that was that was a big tool in his toolkit. So um, at the same time, he was getting thousands. He and the Honor Network were getting thousands and thousands of these websites, entire websites dedicated to the Sandy Hook hoax um, and thousands of pieces of material taken down from the big social media platforms. Um, He and Neil Heslin, who is the father of Jesse Lewis, who was killed at Sandy Hook, um, they got together and said, let's sue Alex Jones, because as this material was being taken down, it was also InfoWars videos and broadcasts that were being taken off the web for using things like Noah's photo and, and that type of thing. Well, Alex Jones went crazy when this happened um, and got furious, and he started, just like the other conspiracy theorists, Jones began to target Lenny personally, um, saying his name online, showing, uh, waving papers around that had addresses connected to his family uh, to try and gin up, you know, the, the sort of vitriol um, toward uh, a Sandy Hook dad, Lenny Posner. Same thing happened with Neil Heslin. Um, he was on. Uh, he had an interview um, with Megyn Kelly on NBC, in which Jones also participated. She did an interview with him and also interviewed Neil Heslin about, um, you know, his last moments with his son Jesse, and when she described holding him, you know, after he was dead and after he had been shot, and Jones on his show, as well as Owen Schroyer, a sidekick of Jones. They cast doubt on this. Oh, he has to prove that to us. Oh, that it didn't couldn't have happened that way. So that enraged Neil, and together the two of them in mid 2018 sued uh, Alex Jones for defamation. Uh, successfully, right? Yes. Yeah. So those were the first um, two suits. Um, so it was Lenny and Veronique Noah's parents. Um, Neil Heslin and Scarlett Lewis, Jesse Lewis's parents, and then um, the family members of eight other victims, as well as an FBI agent who was implicated in these false Sandy Hook theories, 
Um, they all filed suit in Connecticut. So altogether, there were four lawsuits. They dragged on for years. Um, Alex Jones trying to stymie the process every step of the way. He and his lawyers, you know, submitting incomplete records or no records at all um, as part of the run-up to trial. You know, business records, no, you know, not showing up for deposition. So basically kind of stonewalling the process. Um, and by the end of last year, judges in both the the three of the suits were filed in Texas and the big one in Connecticut, um, judges in all of those by the end of last year had ruled Alex Jones liable by default, meaning he had um, stymied the process so much, he had violated so many court orders that the judges ruled in those two states in the Sandy Hook family's favor. So this spring, trials will begin, but the jury trials um, will only be for the juries to decide how much Jones should pay the, the families of these 10 victims in damages. So uh, so that's that's yet to come. Um, I understand in the middle of depositions, Alex Jones was forced to, you know, admit, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's an act. Um, But 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 I wonder, you know, you might think, oh, that's a gotcha. Right. But uh, (laughs) I imagine for a lot of these people believe in these conspiracy theory, that's that's just not going to resonate. No, I mean, people cling to these beliefs. They got a lot out of this. You know, it makes them feel, um, for these conspiracy theorists, it makes them feel like they're in possession of superior knowledge. Um, It kind of boosts their self-esteem. It gives them a whole social circle that they didn't have before. A lot of these conspiracy theorists are pretty isolated people. Um, they, They have, a lot of them have been estranged from their family and friends because of these beliefs. So they cling to each other as a kind of, you know, small society. Um, and so they don't want to give them up. Um, but Alex Jones, I mean, a real, the real victory for Lenny Posner, Noah's dad, has been Alex Jones's name is seldom mentioned without the following sentence being the person who spread lies about the Sandy Hook shooting. Um, this is... Um, you know, hung around his neck, um, which is a real victory for Lenny because, you know, it it damages his credibility. I mean, <laughs> I guess you could argue, you know, um, such as it is, um, but it it does represent, um, you know, other than the significant legal victories that the families have racked up, it's a it's a moral victory. It means that Noah's legacy survives. That when you Google the name Noah Posner, the Sandy Hook victim, or when you Google the Sandy Hook shooting in general, it used to be that nothing but lies and hoax material would surface. It would be there first. Now it's not like that anymore. And that was always Lenny's goal. You mentioned him chasing Noah's scent through cyberspace. I mean, one thing that he told me early on in, you know, my work on this book three years ago was that he used to pop in like so many of us do with, you know, when our children are small, you know, he would pop in when Noah was sleeping at night and he would just sort of inhale his scent, you know, that special baby, you know, sweaty scent that little children have. And after Noah was killed, he just was hunting everywhere for that scent. You know, he wanted something, his pajamas, you know, something that smelled like him. And 
it was it was like that scent, you know, and he couldn't find it anywhere. It was gone. And so it was sort of like that, you know, online that, you know, any sense of who Noah was, if he didn't fight these hoaxers, it would be gone. It would fade away to nothing. And the fact that it hasn't, he's won. Yeah, that, that's that's another hopeful note in this, right? Uh, yes. What... What is the role? What was the culpability? Uh, and what should uh, social media platforms do about these conspiracy theorists and theories? The good news is um, this is so much on the radar screen now, especially after January 6th, especially now, you know, when we talk about Ukraine, um, the, the kind of, you know, lie that's being pushed as, as the pretext for invading Ukraine. These uh, platforms, and you see the way they've taken action, you know, in the aftermath of uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, you know, taking down sites, um, tightening up controls over what's posted and where it goes, you know, how fast it spreads. Um, you know, these platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they react to public shaming and to public scandal. And so that is something that, that Lenny used quite effectively through writing letters to the editor and calling out people like Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg. So they are taking more action. The problem is they've built such enormous creations now, billions of users, whereas even at the time of Sandy Hook, it was a, it was a fraction of what the use is now, social media. So um, you could argue that there needs to be a policy solution because these creators in Silicon Valley have built platforms that are so large now that they are difficult, if not impossible, to fully police and control. Finally, I'm curious, um, you know, the, the Sarah Palin suit against the, the Times, it, I, I don't know what, uh, what your feeling is in terms of some people will say, especially on the right, will is point to something like that and say, well, look, you know, the mainstream press is, they've got a bunch of problems, we can't believe them, kind of equating, you know, uh, things, uh, trying to make it equal. I think that one of the things that has contributed to the spread of false narratives in our online and our public discourse has been eroding trust in the media, just like eroding trust in the government. Um, and that really does cut to what you had said earlier, Tom, about who are the arbiters of truth. If it's not the government that you can trust, if it's not the mainstream media that you can trust, who do you replace them with? And I think that is what my book asks. You know, how, where are we going if all of our traditionally most trustworthy sources of information have been discredited by people with bad intentions? Um, you know, Stop the Steal has become a model for autocracies around the world. Um, now there's a tool in every autocrat's toolkit. If you lose, even if it's a sham election, if you lose an election, you can just say it was fake and that it was a scam and a fraud. Um, that's a pretty terrible position for the United States to be in, as you know, as a swath of Americans have birthed um, a tool that autocrats find useful when it comes to democracy. I mean, that's a terrible road. 
So uh, I can't leave it on a uh, down note. What what do we do? What what you know? Give me some hope here at the end. What how how do we counteract yes. that and preserve these I'm, arbiters of truth? I'm at least in some people's minds. Yes. I think if the Sandy Hook families taught us all one thing, it's that the fight is absolutely worth it. Um, they have managed to put. And, and many others who have followed them, who have fought all of these other theories, they do manage to put this on everyone's radar screen. The social media companies, the Congress, um, you know, thinkers and think tanks. Um, it's pretty rare to find a major university now that isn't studying mis- and disinformation. Um, and so I do think that, you know, the Sandy Hook families and all the people that have followed them who have been fighting against these conspiracy theorists in this battle for truth, we see that they are winning. You know, they are beginning to win. It's on our radar screen. People are looking at it. They're trying to, to study how it starts, how it spreads, and how to stop it. And so I am optimistic. You know, I think we need to look at this. We owe it to families like the Sandy Hook families to look at this. They shared with me for my book the worst moments of their life because they believe that we can make change that if enough people pay attention and hear their story and all the stories that followed after all these other events, that if we together, if that maybe could be one thing we could unite around, it's that we need to improve our public discourse and flush out some of this material. Well, thank you for helping us end on a, on a hopeful note. Appreciate that. Um, no, uh, I do yeah. feel that way. <laughs> Very good. I think it will help. Very good. Uh, Elizabeth Williamson has been with us. Her new book's out, available now, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Um, And uh, thank you so much for this discussion. Very enlightening. Thank you. Tom, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Southern Utah's unreliable Virgin River prevented settlers from achieving their dream of taming the land to grow cotton. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Believing they could make the desert blossom as the rose, Mormon settlers expanded into southwestern Utah in the 1850s at the direction of their church's leader, Brigham Young. They established the Cotton Mission, hoping to grow enough cotton to ease dependence on outside trade. But the arid landscape challenged their dream of economic self-sufficiency, and the Cotton Mission was a short-lived, futile effort. The colonists found the greatest enemy to their economic success was the volatile Virgin River. Settlers hoped to grow enough cotton to supply community members' needs, but the results were disappointing at best. Cotton is a thirsty plant, and southwestern Utah receives little rainfall. Hot, dry summers and alkaline soils were challenges on their own. Together with the unpredictable floods of the Virgin River, the cotton mission stood little chance of success. Heavy rains in 1861 washed away some of the first attempts to settle the towns of Grafton, Virgin, and Rockville. Rising waters threatened families, including one settler in Grafton, Mrs. Tenney, who was in active labor with her son when the flood struck and had to be carried to safety. Homes, wagons, food, and furniture were swept away with the river. Once the storm cleared, the damaged properties and crops were covered in mud and in desperate need of repair. 
During dry times, the Virgin River is little more than a trickle and insufficient for large agricultural production. The steeply dropping river was also prone to flash flooding that regularly washed away dams and other property. Families struggled to farm even small gardens called dinner baskets along its banks because these plots, laid in narrow strips along either side of the river, were highly susceptible to erosion from flooding. It didn't take long before most settlers packed up and headed for higher, safer ground. Despite the harsh conditions, there were a few families who remained on the land and continued to plant crops. Ultimately, this persistence led nowhere, and the Cotton Mission eventually died amidst the harsh and unforgiving landscape. The unpredictable Virgin River overpowered efforts to grow cotton and turned dreams of self-sufficiency into a struggle for survival. Find sources in past episodes at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.